0: Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about a podcast. Uh, if you grew up around a certain period of time, you probably learned to love reading by watching LeVar Burton, host of Reading Rainbow. Yes. Take a look. It's in a book of Reading Rainbow. LeVar has a new podcast that recreates the magic of Reading Rainbow for grown-ups. It's called Lavar Burton reads. Each episode features him reading one of his favorite short stories. Uh, one here, let's see, A "Kin" by Bruce McAllister, and he reads it directly to you. I think you will like this. Uh, you do not have to take my word for it. Subscribe to Lavar Burton Reads in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff is somewhere on a boat, probably. (laughs) Spearfishing. This week on the show, uh, someone we wanted to have on for a very long time, someone who has one of the deepest archives on longform.org, just story after story after story, incredible stuff. Mark Bowden. uh, Max, you know who Mark Bowden is? I do. Uh, Probably best known for Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down was actually a series he ran in a newspaper. Um, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, he's done tons of great stuff for the Atlantic. He has a new book out called Hue, 1968: A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. The book is considerably less dry than that sounds. Uh, I actually I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, it was great great to talk to him. Uh, you know what else is great? What's that? This uh, partnership we've got with MailChimp. They've been supporting the show for years, and uh, this summer we're doing a little project with them. We have curated a uh, reading list for them. They're they're reading along with us this summer, and then we're bringing all the authors who are on the list to the Decatur Book Festival over Labor Day. Give me one example of someone you'll be bringing to this Decatur book fest. Dory, Dory you know, Shafrir. Dory Shafrir. She's got a novel called Startup. It's uh, satirical and hilarious. Uh, she'll be there. Go to readthissummer.com to see the full list of authors. And uh, if you can, get yourself to Decatur on uh, thank, Labor Day. Thank you, as always, for everything you do, Mailchimp. Now here's Aaron with Mark Bowden. Welcome, Mark Bowden. Thank you, Aaron. Um, You have a new book out. Um, The book is Hue, 1968. Um, It's about really like a single battle in Vietnam, a single series of days. A month, Uh, actually. A month. (laughs) 31 days. Uh, (laughs) I'm curious, like, where a book like this starts for you. Um, What causes you to say, I'm going to, like, stop and spend years on this one thing?
1: Well, it's a good question. And I think one of the fears that I have as a writer is that I will take on a subject matter that begins to weigh me down in the second or third year. And so every morning I have to wake up and wrestle with something that I hate. Thankfully, this hasn't happened to me yet. And partly it's because I do try to choose subject matter that connects with me on a personal level. I was 16 years old when this battle was fought in 1968. And at that point in my life, um, I was having these uh, intense arguments with my father about the war in Vietnam. Neither of us knew enough, frankly, to have a strong opinion on the subject. But my dad was very much in favor of the war, and I was very much against it. What media had informed, like,
0: your view of the Vietnam War at that time? At that
1: point, very little. You know, I probably watched the evening news. You know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't at age 16, an avid newspaper reader or anything, but that's what this led me to. Uh, my father would always, um, he's a smart guy, and he would always say, how do you know that? You know, and I would argue something with him, and he'd say, well, you know, why do you think that? And so I actually started uh, reading newspapers. I subscribed to Time Magazine, uh, which was the first time I ever did anything like that. I looked for books in the library, so that, frankly, I could win arguments with my father. And that process of getting me engaged in trying to better understand an event that was happening in the world uh, really is one of the things that led me down a path to becoming a journalist and a writer. So the subject matter of Vietnam has always been of great interest to me, as it is, I think, for almost anyone in my generation who grew up with it. And my method of storytelling is to try to find an episode that can work as kind of a lens on the larger story
0: once you started having that inclination towards journalism what were the first few steps you took towards it
1: well i was you know always a kid who read a lot i read comic books and and i remember my parents got me bible stories and i devoured those and uh and then my mom would um take me along to the library when she went and I would just grab books at random off the shelves of looking for things like science fiction and uh, this process of reading about Vietnam basically was a kind of a structured study of something and which is what I do today still mm-hmm. and you know I became an avid reader of books about history as a result and then I went to college and and became the editor of my college newspaper and started writing, and um, that got me my first job in a newspaper, and I fell in love with reporting and writing at the newspaper, so that's...
0: What kind of stuff were you doing when you were starting out, like, first few years in newspapers?
1: My first job at the Baltimore News American was for a section of the paper called Young World, and they hired me to write these searching stories about loneliness and acne and braces. <laughs> How and old were you at this time? 20, 21 years so old. So you
0: were kind of like playing a 15-year-old I was, as a yeah. 20-year-old? I
1: was, I was the token young person, <laughs> and, and I was writing about teenagers, so I was just a few years removed from teenagers. Yeah. But what it did was it was one section of the paper that really allowed for longer pieces, and so I was able, and it was only came out once a week. So I had time... At that point, to uh, interview a number of people, really think about what I was writing, compose stories, much more so than, I think, reporters who are thrown right into the newsroom and are covering breaking stories every day.
0: At what point in your life did you start doing things that took a more, like, investigative, like, (laughs) I'm going out and asking people about things and reporting back on it?
1: Well, right from the beginning, because that's the essence of what reporting is. I mean, (laughs) you uh, you begin knowing very little about something and uh, you read and then you try to find people who know what they're talking about or who have been close to the experience that you're uh, trying to write about. Uh, So really, right from the beginning, uh, that's what it was. And people talk about investigative journalism. To me, it's. A um, redundancy. Uh, yeah. You know, inv- that's what journalism is to me, anyways, going out and finding people and talking to them. And it's the fun of it, too.
0: What was it like doing that within a newspaper environment? Because I think a lot of people who identify more with this kind of writing, you know, The New Yorker, you've written a lot for The Atlantic. When you're like at a daily newspaper, mm-hmm. what are the challenges of doing that kind of work within a newspaper?
1: Well, I mean, I didn't start out with the skill or, frankly, even um, the ambition of writing magazine-length stories. And to me, as a kid, writing for the newspaper, to get a well-written, well-reported daily story in the paper was about as much of a challenge as I could uh, bite off. And I, But I got better at it. And as I did, I started looking for more time, trying to convince editors that I needed an extra day or two to work on a story and evolved into someone who eventually wrote primarily longer Sunday pieces. Like anything else, if you're good at something, people will give you more opportunities to do it. And the newspaper saw that this was something that, that I did well. And then at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was, you know, the great newspaper I worked for, they put me on the staff of the Sunday magazine. And then was, that was really the time that I was working for the first time for sometimes months on a story before I finished it.
0: Were you influenced by um, the journalists who were covering the Vietnam War? Because that's kind of the generation right before you, really.
1: Exactly. You know, I got interested in reading books and articles to learn more about the war in Vietnam. And this is in the 1960s. And so I'm starting now to pick up Harper's Magazine and Ramparts and The Atlantic and Esquire and Rolling Stone. Yeah. And there's this tremendous flowering of what they called then the new journalism. Writers like Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and Joan Didion and Norman Mailer, many of whom were writing about Vietnam, Michael Herr and yeah. Esquire. And I'm reading these uh, insanely good stories and also admiring the sort of exploits of uh, the people writing them and yeah. thinking, I don't want to write novels. I want to do this. You know, yeah. I, want, I want to do what they do.
0: What, what was appealing about it to you?
1: Well, I loved writing. I mean, I'd been a reader since I was a little kid. And I recognized at that point in my teens, something that was worth reading just for the fun of reading the prose. I mean, somebody who was such a good writer, that whatever the subject matter was, I would want to read what that writer wrote. So that, you know, was a challenge to me. I thought, geez, I'd love to be able to write like that. And then the other thing was the things they were doing. I mean, Tom Wolfe was hanging out with the uh, Merry Pranksters and driving across country before he re- wrote the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, and Gay Talese was off uh, at swingers resorts. And, yeah, you know. He, <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking, that's cool, you know. Yeah. I, I And Michael Herr is in the middle of combat yeah. in Vietnam, and I thought, you know, that was as appealing to me as the uh, the writing. So, you know, if I'm different than someone who became a novelist or a short story writer is that I was drawn to having those kinds of real experiences in the world. I wanted to be able to travel and see and learn and yeah. do cool stuff.
0: What were your first forays into doing that? Like what were the really memorable experiences? You're like, whoa, I'm like, I'm doing it now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you have that sense, um, you know, all on the way, but I think the first really major one was when uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, asked me to go to Africa to research a series of stories about the extinction of the black rhino. And I knew nothing about this. I was as ignorant a traveler as you could ever be, but I got myself visas and shots and and airplane tickets and flew to Nairobi. And I worked for like two months, traveling all over Africa, chartering planes and finding people in the bush and interviewing them. And I just had one fascinating experience after the next. And I can remember one day riding in the back of a truck across the bush somewhere in southern Kenya and pinching myself thinking, I'm actually getting paid to do this right now. (laughs) You have kind of like a
0: history um, in a lot of stories you've done of going into places that are very hard to describe. Um, hue in this book... Once you understand like all of the complex different factions and religious groups and militias and Mogadishu is certainly that way. um, How did you try to describe new places like that? Like what's what's the challenge of going into some place you've never been and describing it to someone who's never going to go there?
1: Well, it's the challenge and the pleasure. I think, you know, I always ask myself as a writer, you know, what can I give the reader? that they're only gonna get from me yeah Um, you know they're not gonna get to go to the places that I've gone they're not gonna get to see this and I've also been because of that early exposure to the new journalists applying the techniques of fiction writing to writing nonfiction so part of that is appreciating the importance of setting of creating an image in the readers mind that puts them in the place where the action is taking place so I'm very deliberate about that kind of thing. If I'm uh, working on a book and I know, or a story, and I know I'm going to try to recreate a scene in a particular place, I'm. T- I take notes about what I see. I take pictures and bring them home and and use those to help jog my memory, and uh, and I learn from the way other writers do those things. I mean, I had this great teacher in high school, who in an English class who. He said, you know, people who tell you that there's, you know, important things between the lines don't know what they're talking about. There is nothing between the lines. (laughs) Everything is in the words and the words tell the story. And and I took that very much to heart. And I see writing as a very deliberate craft. (laughs) ¶¶
0: Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a moment to give you a quick word from our sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is on a mission to save home cooking. They're a farm-to-box company because they want everyone to have access to fresh ingredients that inspire great meals, and they don't stop there. They make cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, they create new, delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take uh, about 30 minutes, whether you're a novice or a seasoned home cook. It's fresh ingredients, chopped, measured exactly to the right quantity so you don't have any waste at the end, and it's all for less than $10 a meal. So delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook. Get cooking with HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com and put in code LONGFORM30, you'll get 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries again hellofresh.com code longform30 thank you hellofresh today's show is also brought to you by Babel the number one selling language learning app in the entire world perhaps you have wanted to learn a language for an upcoming trip or there's someone out there that you want to talk to maybe it's something you just want to do for yourself I think the easiest way to do it is with an app. They can teach you how to have real-life conversations in a new language, all from your desktop, smartphone, or tablet. It's all practical situations, how to get directions to a bookstore, order food, talk business. Uh, It's interactive, so you retain stuff, unlike when you read it off a page. It's cut into amazing, short, convenient, 10-15 Ten to fifteen minute lessons, so you can learn wherever you are, whenever you have a free minute in your schedule. So I encourage you go to babble, b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash longform and use code longform. You'll get three months free when you sign up for three months. Again at babble.com dot com slash longform with the offer code longform. Thank you, Babble. Here I am back with Mark Bowden. <laughs> For you, was was Black Hawk Down like the original template of you attempting a story of this kind of magnitude with this kind of a zoomed in every fact there kind of perspective?
1: It was one of them. I mean, I had written two books prior to Black Hawk Down. And in both of those cases, I was trying to do pretty much the same thing. I think Black Hawk Down, though, uh, you're right, is the first time that I. Focused very narrowly, and I did that deliberately. I yeah. before I started writing the book, you know, I was interested in the whole American intervention in Somalia. And if I had written a book called "The American Intervention in Somalia," <laughs> about five people would have read it. Yeah, uh, but I'd been writing for newspapers for a long time. I understand the importance of writing a dramatic, compelling narrative. And so, what I look for as I'm looking at what happened in Somalia is the event that defines the whole story. And if you can, I call it kind of the dramatic center of the story. And Black Hawk Down or the Battle of Mogadishu was that. And actually, if you read that book, it does tell you the whole story of America's intervention in Somalia, but it does it through the lens of this one particular moment. And so, yes, uh, that same concept was in my mind when I wrote Hue. I felt like, you know, I did that successfully with Somalia, and now is an opportunity for me to take on a subject that I had grown up in the middle of, so polarizing. And when I talk about arguing with my father, I'm talking about seeing the veins stand up on the <laughs> side of his neck and his face turning red. And, and uh, you know, this is a very emotional and powerful uh, experience in my life. And so why wouldn't I want to use the tools that I have to try and master that subject?
0: Do you see that compression where you're like, you're compressing the Somalian narrative into this street fight in Mogadishu are movies an influence on that kind of a technique? I feel like you create this challenge for yourself where all of the details have to be in this like very tight, physical minute by minute account. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious, like where you learned that and, and how you feel like it's developed over the years.
1: Well, I mean, movies have been a big influence, and I've no doubt seen three movies for every book I've ever read. Maybe (laughs) ten movies for every book I've read. But the thing that I take from film is the discipline of structuring a story around scenes, action, Mm. character, dialogue. And that's true of anything that you read, for the most part. You are drawn into stories if there are compelling characters, and there's action, and there's dialogue, and Uh, And I think if you're reading any book, those are the pages that turn the fastest. And then you run into a big block of explanatory copy, what Ridley Scott calls Irving, Irving the explainer. And and you learn, I think, to try to keep that to a minimum because you don't want to lose the impetus of the story and you don't want to lose the attention of the reader. So I, you know, both in the prose that I read and in the films that I see, I like uh, that method of storytelling. And it's a challenge. I mean, if you're writing a book about something that happened 50 years ago... Yeah, that was you, going to be
0: my next question. Is like, how do you get any of those details 50 people, years ago? People.
1: And, yeah. you know, you get people to tell you their stories. Some people are natural-born storytellers. You just sort of press a button and out it comes. Other people will talk kind of in general yeah. about, I felt like this. or But you have to really sometimes drag out the actual experiences that led them to the ideas that they have. And in there somewhere is an anecdote or a story that I can use. And so, you know, this book was six years in the reporting and writing. And, uh, you know, I have hundreds of interviews with people. uh, And I pick from those interviews the material that I can craft into uh, compelling scenes. And then I string those suckers together.
0: And so are you almost doing like a casting call of a kind where you're like, all right, there's like these 60 Marines were in this area, 23 of them are still alive, 18 of them will talk to me, which one of these guys is like the best? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it'd be nice if I had that clear and overview. <laughs> but it's true. I yeah. mean, but it's more like you just keep calling and talking to people. Yeah. And initially it's purely random. I mean, when I started working on the book, I didn't know... The layout of the city of Hue. I didn't understand the various units that were involved and yeah. different important phases of the battle. I just knew there's this big battle that happened, and and I started talking to people who were there, and some of those people were wonderful storytellers, and you kind of make a mental note. I gotta go back or go see them a second or a third time because they're really really good. But you know, over time, you do then begin to develop an overview, and you start to realize holes in the story you want to tell. I need to know more about what happened here and this phase. And then you actually do go out and find people who can answer those questions. But it kind of just grows from little seeds.
0: (laughs) Was telling the Vietnamese side harder? I mean, this book is almost balanced between first person narrative of Americans and Vietnamese protagonists. What was it like trying to do that, like over a cultural gap also?
1: It was a huge reporting challenge. It wouldn't be as hard today as it was 20 years ago because Vietnam has opened up. You can come and go. Language is always a barrier, uh, but I've worked with that now for many years. And the key there is to hire somebody who's really a talented um, fixer and translator. So I was very fortunate to find a man named Deng Hua Ho, who was a uh, retired military officer uh, in Vietnam and I said you know I need somebody to get, you know go through the archives I don't read Vietnamese here's what I'm trying to do here's what I'm looking for and I need somebody to find people who fought or who were civilians who were there and Hua did all those things for me and so when I traveled to Vietnam he would set up like a two week itinerary for me where I would do three and sometimes four interviews a day over a period of two weeks, and I'd come back with a great store of really good in-depth interviews about which I, at that point, only understood like maybe (laughs) one-fifth because uh, I'm only getting the snippets that he's rapidly translating for me. So I hired a young woman uh, to transcribe and translate all those interviews, and it's only then that I see the richness of the people's response. Then I went back a second time, and we did the same thing, but in some cases I went back to the same people I had interviewed once before, because I really thought, like Che Ti Mung, who's the village girl who fights for the Viet Cong, and she was such a good storyteller, and I think such an interesting person, that I went back and saw her again and got more from her. So at that point, I kind of already knew who were going to be important characters in the story, so I was able to do a little bit more focused work, but... You know it was expensive i was fortunate that i had a good advance for this book and i could spend the money to not just take myself to vietnam but hire someone to work for me over there and believe me the cost of getting vietnamese translated and transcribed was more than years ago i could have ever dreamed of of spending but it was very much worth it because i set out to tell this story from both sides the story of a battle is not just about Americans. It's about the Vietnamese and who they were and why they were fighting. And it's one of the things that I'm proudest of in this book is I do think it's the first book about Vietnam that has been fully reported in Vietnam as much as in the United States.
0: You have an ability in a lot of your writing. I was rewriting your um, sort of day in the life of Saddam Hussein piece where you're able to do a kind of a, a scale distortion where like the life of a peasant and the life of Saddam Hussein seem to like kind of have a similar rhythm <laughs> and depth to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering like what you've learned about how to depict someone's life in a way that gives it that kind of equal weight because it be, it can be sort of a lot of history. I feel like can become like Churchill biography number 47 sort of right. the great men and the great things they did.
1: Yeah. That's well, true. and I think my motivation is to try to understand why things happen the way they do in the world. And I work on a person, a story about a person or an event, to the point where I feel like I've arrived at my own understanding of that person or that thing. And it is only my understanding, but it's the point that point it's fairly well informed. Uh, in the case of Saddam, I set out to try to penetrate all of the mythology about him, all of the distortions, uh, realizing that a lot of what we read and heard about him uh, was slanted or painting him to be this, you know, monster. And in some ways, he certainly was. But I wanted to try to understand what it was like to be Saddam Hussein. I wanted to have, so I figured you know, this is a guy who looks at himself in the mirror every day, and he probably doesn't look in the mirror and say, here is the most evil man in the world. Yeah. He, you know, he sees himself differently you know than than we see him i want to see him the way he sees him and that story involved finding people who knew him personally who had interacted with him in some cases over years personally who could tell me how he lives his life from day to day i mean what what he looks like what it feels like to be in the room with him uh and you know that whole story is constructed around those events those moments where people have had to deal with him and i read his books and i I read his speeches, and you begin to sort of feel how he sees the world. And I pretty much take that approach, because I feel like my goal is never to condemn uh, someone that I'm writing about. It's always to understand them. And that, to me, is far more interesting than passing judgment on them. I, I want you to read about Chetimung, an 18-year-old village girl who is who is selling hats on corners and. In- in the daytime and going home and sharpening spikes to go into booby traps to try and kill American soldiers and Arvin soldiers in the evening. And I want to understand why she would do that and why would she would be so, you know, motivated to do that. And I think I did. I think I did come to understand that. And when I, and and then you get a mosaic, you know, of all these different people whose lives have brought them to this place In this time, and you see nearly all of them are well motivated, they're trying to do the right thing, and yet this terrible tear in the fabric of civilization is taking place where literally 10,000 people or more are being killed. You know, what could be a more compelling or important story to understand? Do you think
0: that taking that approach to sort of character and individuals makes your writing uniquely suited for adaptation? I mean, while I was reading this book, I was just kind of like, whoa, this is like a this is like a pretty crazy cable miniseries, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that in a crass way. i I think that there's a kind of a healthy exchange of ideas right now between like cable TV and nonfiction and and both could be said to be pretty heavily influenced by each other yeah. right now. Um, a doubt. how already, do you think about that stuff? Well,
1: I mean, I've already said a uh, film has very much influenced my yeah. writing. Uh, I do not um sit down and think, gee, how can I write this so that it'll be made into a film? Right. And frankly, I don't think that way because I know for everything I write, somebody buys the rights to it. <laughs> right, it doesn't I matter
0: mean, if you think I, about it. I,
1: I mean, I wrote a book about a computer virus called Worm, yeah. You know, and, and people bought the rights to that. You know, right. and I can't imagine how they would make a movie out of that. So, so you see a lot of
0: people acquiring podcasts now for <laughs> movie rights. So it
1: well, all works. <laughs> seriously, you know, I... I uh, what I do attempt is to tell a compelling and dramatic story. Yeah. I feel like this is a 600-page book. If I can't make you want to keep reading, no one's going to read this book. You know, yeah. I have no desire to write a tome that sits on a shelf uh, that people maybe admire, but they don't actually read. I want to write books that people read. That's the point. Right. And, and I know the way to do that. I the, the way to do that is to fill your stories with color, with life, with people, with drama and there's enough of that in the real world that you don't have to make it up you know you and a can,
0: lot of stakes and I lot, mean and huge you, stakes. D- you don't really do like <laughs> low stakes stories very often. <laughs> uh, you know, bring up Saddam Hussein just sort of made me think so, so when you started this book Saddam Hussein would have already been dead yes yeah? six years ago he's more than
1: yeah yeah, yeah. he was hung about a decade ago a decade ago. ago.
0: So you start this book six years later, still in Iraq, still uh, you're covering a military operation gone wrong in the midst of a military operation gone wrong. <laughs> like, what's it like? You're talking to a lot of American soldiers. Tell me about writing a book in that climate.
1: Well, I mean, it's very apparent to me, as it is now to everyone, that uh, military conflict is a big part of life on this planet. And it's certainly been a big part of every American's experience over the last 20 years. Years there was a period, uh, really, from about the time the Vietnam War ended until you know I wrote Black Hawk Down, where there was actually very little conflict. There was the Persian Gulf War, which lasted what about thirty minutes, and um, I don't think anybody, any Americans, got killed. Then you know this incident happened in Somalia, where eighteen American soldiers were killed, and that tells you how spare the landscape for military writing was at that point. That. 18 American soldiers who were killed in Mogadishu was the most significant military clash that the United States had been engaged in in 20 or 30 years. So to me, it was like a no-brainer. I got to go write that story. I've got to go figure out what happened there. I think since then, because of 9-11 and because of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, a whole generation of Americans has grown up now, as I did, uh, with war as a big part of their experience. Even if they didn't go and fight themselves, they know they have brothers and they have sisters, they have you know, fathers who did, and the country has been affected by that. So, you know, people ask me why I write about war, and it's not the only thing I write about, but it certainly is a big, big part of the modern experience, and that's why I'm here. I'm to try to figure this stuff out.
0: Yeah. So you started out in newspapers. You're now doing things like pouring six years of your life Into a single story. What has it been like watching the evolution or the de evolution of the American newspaper? And would you go into this if you were starting out, you know, being radicalized by the coverage of a war in 2017, you know, coming out of college?
1: I absolutely would. I wouldn't go about it in the same way. I mean, my path to what I do now was through a really great newspaper, working for a great newspaper, and there still are great newspapers and there still are opportunities for reporters to learn and to do good work. I think there are fewer uh, than there used to be, but there are other paths like you're doing a podcast and people are doing wonderful work with uh, uh, audio, people are doing video, anybody with a cell phone yeah. can make a video. So yeah, I would definitely be doing uh, the same kind of work in reporting, but my path would have been completely different. You know, I've been both heartened and dismayed by what's happened to journalism. I'm heartened by the fact that it's been completely democratized. I mean, when I started out, if I wanted to write a story and get it published, I had to get hired. I lived in Baltimore, and at that time there were two newspapers. One of them had to hire me uh, in order for me to get published. Even harder to be a filmmaker or uh, somebody who creates music. Today, everybody has those tools to do that. And so that's wonderful. And that's actually a world-transforming development. It is making tyrants all over the world tremble, this incredible democratization of information. Uh, At the same time, it has destroyed the uh, journalistic institutions which create a culture which is vital for a democracy, which is a culture of accuracy, of serious reporting, of fair-minded reporting, of uh, working to try and tell people something as opposed to selling people something and those lines between journalism and propaganda and advertising have all now so blurred that i teach students who i don't think recognize the difference between being a journalist and being an activist or a, a propagandist for and we have whole networks you know on television that are devoted to selling you ideas, selling you political theories, selling you candidates uh, in the same way that you're being sold soap and, and cigarettes. You know, there, there are, it's a very confusing information environment. And it's appalling to me as someone who was nurtured in a culture of serious reporting and serious journalism. Uh, certainly the level of talent, Uh, is as great today, if not better than ever before. I find young people, I have five children of my own. I think they are better educated, better informed than I ever was at their age and every bit as capable. So I don't have any fears about the capability being there. My fear is finding and sorting out, you know, the information that is worthwhile, that's serious from that, which is just there to poison your your brain and you know politics is the great you know uh, pool where we see all this being played out to our eternal shame and dismay
0: I had the last guest I had on this show was a a young documentary filmmaker who had just made a film for HBO and largely the entire movie um, could be traced through emails and text messages involved a murder the people who were committed the murder had been conspiring via text message. You could pretty much tell like up to the minute where these people were standing. Um, I wonder, you know, as someone who's painstakingly recreated the past with a very thin paper trail, how you see, um, that job evolving as the amount of data available just becomes enormous. Um,
1: yeah, I've, I mean, it's happened in my own life. This book happens to go back 50 years. Right. But the vast majority of my work in over the last 20 years or so has been writing about fairly contemporary yeah, things. Yeah, you
0: wrote about the conficker. Conficker
1: genocide. worm, and yeah. I wrote about the hunt for Osama bin Laden, yeah. how they found him. When I wrote Black Hawk Down, I mean, I noted this actually in the epilogue to Black Hawk Down, I ended up, uh, at the end of that reporting trail, with more information than any human being has ever had, to write the story of a battle, because that battle was videotaped. And right. I actually got to see the videotape. The, all of the radio dialogue uh, from the trucks to the helicopters was all recorded, yeah. and it's all transcribed. So I don't have to, you know, try to recreate dialogue. I've got actual dialogue from the battle. I've got photographs. You know, so all of the information I get from the characters and their memories is it's got to jibe with the the documentary record. And it's
0: verbatim media. It's like, quote, literally quotes, not quote, quotes.
1: Absolutely. One of the first stories I ever did that drew upon that was there was this big police corruption scandal in Philadelphia where basically the cops were collecting money from these whorehouses all over the city and keeping them in business. And they all got in trouble and went to jail. And there were this was covered in the newspaper in the way that newspapers would cover these stories, which I always said kind of happened backwards. You know, you learn about the arrest of the cops, and there's this sort of summary of the things that they supposedly did wrong. And then there's some point later, months later, a trial, where they begin, you know, bringing in people in a disjointed way, sort of telling the story of what actually happened. And you read about this piecemeal in the newspaper. Well, I decided when I learned that the FBI had audiotaped and videotaped all of these meetings between the cops and the and the people they were collecting money from. I thought, you know what? Those are scenes, you know, and if I can construct a story using that information, I can write a very accurate story and a dramatic one that just unfolds. So you can see with your own eyes exactly what the story is about and exactly what happened and then supplement that by Reporting and learning who these characters were and what the context was, you know, for this meeting, and I remember going to the courthouse, and uh, this was in Philadelphia at the federal building, and I went to the judge's chambers and they where they had held this trial, and I said I, I'd like to see all the videos, and they said, well, you can't see those videos. I can. Uh, You know, they were actually shown at the trial. They're part of the public record. right? And so we had to go to the federal judge and he said, yeah, he can see them. That's part of the court record. So they handed it over. And what they were doing is they were giving me the most amazing uh, raw material for a story. And I, to this day, I'm shocked that I'm the only reporter who thought to do that because it's just such a no-brainer. You know, there it all is. So I, when I write a contemporary story, I'm always asking people, you know, do you have pictures? Do you have video? If it's a story that involves the police, you know, what kind of surveillance did they do? You know, what can I get access to? And there's a whole lot more of that today, and there will be more in the future. Uh, And that just seems to me gives writers more material.
0: I mean, I always just think that the documentaries that are going to come out of Iraq and Afghanistan, like when you were doing Black Hawk Down, that was when, like it was still pretty expensive to get like a little like low res camera. Nowadays, everyone has like a 1080p camera. Like there'll be multiple
1: angle
0: 3d captures of this stuff. And I would just assume based on where American culture is right now, that everyone's filming themselves doing everything on on both sides of the war probably.
1: But it takes, you know, a certain artistic ability to take all that raw material and, and be able to tell a compelling story with it. And I think, frankly the people who can do that are, are rare but they're there i agree with you and i think you're going to see you know fantastic work and the work presented in ways that i haven't even imagined i mean yeah. i'm still i'm an old fart am <laughs> i i'm writing you know i work with the written word on the page i think young people are much more inclined today to work with multimedia the internet gives you the opportunity and i've never seen yet anyone who has completely mastered the capability that the Internet provides where you can literally combine every kind of media in a way that tells a story and and they can tell a story in a way that no one's ever seen before
0: I do think it weirdly comes back to like text and photographs a lot like Mm -hmm. when you really look at stuff that succeeds there is a sort of like essential forums element to it but who knows and
1: you know and if I can say a few words in defense of prose yeah I mean there is no tool for expression superior to language. I mean language is the is the medium of thought. Yeah. And the only way ultimately that you can actually get inside of a character's head or really reach to the nuance of any event in life is through language. I yeah. think you can I see film, which is something I've worked in as well, as impressionistic in a way. I mean, you can show a great deal and in some ways the beauty of it is you leave the viewer wondering a little bit about what was what was in that character's mind, you know, when they did that. Prose can put you inside of characters' heads, and you know, and, and you can convey so much information with language so accurately, so concisely. Nothing will ever replace it, I think, as the ultimate medium for storytelling.
0: Um, well, I think that's very much on display in this book. Thank you for taking the time.
1: It's really been a pleasure, Aaron. Thanks. And that was the Longform
0: Podcast. Thanks very much to Mark Bowden. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer, Courtney Harrell. Uh, our incredible sponsors, MailChimp, ReadTheSummer.com. We are going to be uh, curating uh, some summer reading lists and a festival in Georgia. Uh, I don't even know what the details are. Just go to ReadTheSummer.com. You'll figure it out. Oh, we got we we some good sponsors this week. Let's talk about them. Lavar Burton Reads is a new podcast where Lavar picks his favorite short stories and reads them to you. Subscribe to Lavar Burton Reads in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, you probably can get this other podcast. What about HelloFresh? HelloFresh.com. They get you great meals for less than $10 a meal that you make yourself and there's not a lot of waste. 30 bucks off your first week of delivery at HelloFresh.com with the code LONGFORM30. Thank you. Hello, Fresh. We will be back here next week.